BSD Now episode 422, Brian Callahan interview, recorded on the 22nd of September 2021. We have a special episode for you now with me and Tom talking with Brian Callahan about his work in reporting languages to OpenBSD, teaching with BSDs and recruiting students into projects this way, his research, a little bit of diversity in the projects, and his work at NiceBug in this week's episode of BSD Now. We are happy to have Brian Callahan in this interview episode today with this a very special one. And I guess uh, we will give you a lot of new insights and uh, uh, yeah, various topics to, to talk about. And uh, welcome back, Brian. You have been on the show uh, many millennia ago. So I think the last time you didn't even have your PhD yet. So congratulations belatedly. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so in case people don't remember you or we have new folks who are listening to this episode and have never heard from you before, can you briefly introduce yourself again? Sure. Um, so my name is Brian Callahan. I've been an OpenBSD developer since 2013 or so. Um, I'm currently working as a professor in the Information Technology and Web Science program at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, which is in upstate New York. Yeah, cool. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be back. Uh, so, so Brian, could you give us some uh, background and maybe an introduction to your, your research and uh, your research interests and how or maybe if they relate to the BSDs at all? Sure. Um, so I was hired here essentially to revive a information security concentration within the major that had uh, more or less fallen dormant. Um, we kind of had a big thing going on maybe 10 or so years ago, maybe a little less than 10 years ago before my time here, um, which we worked in conjunction with the U.S. Navy um, to teach naval officers, upcoming naval officers, information security. That project came and gone. Um, and we kind of lost a bunch of momentum in information security here within the ITWS program. So my job was to reinvigorate interest into um, those sorts of topics. I teach courses on those topics. Um, so how I use the BSDs um, for my teaching is I force students to use it more or less um, in my information security courses. Um, we have a shared server where they do all their programming work. And it is a happy little open BSD machine that sits in my house that they all connect to. And we do things even piecemeal. For one of the very first um, assignments they have in that class is to learn how to generate SSH keys for themselves because I do not let them do password logins onto that machine for them to do their work. So right every semester I get some student who generates keys and then sends me their private keys instead. I say, go back, do it all over again. These are useless. Don't, don't use them anymore. Classic. Um, so the research that I'm doing currently um, have a couple different tracks. So first and foremost is in cybersecurity pedagogy. So right now am I interested in getting students interested in cybersecurity. I'm interested in how we actually teach it to those students and how we can go about getting more students who are interested in, in cybersecurity and, and how do we teach kind of people at, at all ages. So I've got kind of wing to my uh, research. 
Then I have another wing where I do work working with social science faculty um, all across the world. And I help them do things like systems administration for their software that they use to, right, to forward their research. So I'm kind of a researcher who helps others do the research that they need to do. Um, and then recently in the last year or so, um, I ended up getting my amateur radio license and I have not yet figured out a way to incorporate the BSDs into that, but I promise you I will I will figure out some way to make it happen. So there's a there's a, a project actually by uh, a former colleague of mine called HamBSD. Yes, he is, which right? Is, uh, yeah, it's an open BSD distribution for speaking to packet nodes that he, he spun out and has been playing with for a couple of years. So there's, there's one way to maybe drive it towards doing research. Um, I know when I worked with Ian, he tried to tried to get a project going where we'd use um, packet radio links for high resilience communication. And so we managed to acquire radios, but there was never really enough room in the project to do this. But I guess you could muscle, muscle it in. Yeah, I need to speak to him with some stuff. So I have some public, I have one publication already out and two more on the way. The one that's already out is effectively refiguring Morse code to send right, any arbitrary computer data. Yes, it's not the world's fastest method of transmission, but it is robust. And we're trying to, to maybe work with him to get that implemented. And then I have some exciting stuff with, if we can if we can swing it with the FCC here in the US, um, using steganography to basically shove data payloads into slow scan television transmissions so that we can send both images and some sort of bonus data in those images. But I'm not 100% sure the FCC is gonna go for it quite yet. More work still still ongoing for that. They, they both sound really interesting. Um, you were interviewed by the ARRL, which is the Amateur Radio, I don't know the second R. Relay, Relay League. League. Relay League. Uh, you were interviewed by their Eclec Tech podcast mm -hmm. about the, the Morse pattern. And okay. I think that'd be a real good listen for anybody who's more interested in doing radio stuff than than just BSD. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the last year, you've written quite a lot about writing... Um, tool chains and, and compilers. Could you maybe share some of your favorite stories? Yeah, sure. So back in, I guess it was May, early May, um, I did a talk for Nicebug, which I called Polyglot BSD, um, just kind of as an amusing thing for myself, right? Because I have ported probably at this point, I don't know, between 40 and 50 compilers and interpreters for just about you name it language, I probably have had some hand in, in something somewhere with that language. Um, so in that talk, I really focused on um, what we as BSD people um, and how we could interact with maybe these language communities that exist that are out there that aren't just things that may end up in our base system, right? C compilers that we all know exist, right? We have Clang, some the BSD still have GCC in base. Uh, right, we have shell scripting, Perl, awk, right, you name kind of those in-base languages. But I was thinking more about how um, we can bring all of our natural talents in the BSDs to these other language communities. Um, so for me, some of the really interesting stories, um, so I always bring up the, the D language group, um, just because I think they're a really interesting, tight-knit um, and smart language development team. Um, but I remember I had made a blog post about how, like, after, I don't know, it had to be four, three or four years of trying to get a decompiler working on OpenBSD, I finally did it. And it's not like 
I was this big hero who, you know, suddenly figured out all these intricacies of the language. It was just through natural evolution. It turns out that there were other interested people who were interested in getting the BSDs at least most of the way complete. And I just kind of showed up at the very end of that point and, and put together all those pieces that I had found. And lo and behold, um, it actually worked. But um, the guy who, who runs the D project, uh, Walter, he, you know, he made a, a post on the forums. He made a post, I think, on the D language Reddit community. Um, so I kind of just got tossed in and like say hello to to this language community because they all they all found me rather than me finding them. Uh, but actually, it ended up working in my favor. So I will actually be talking at their conference in November. So instead of like I did at Nicebug, telling all the BSD people how interesting all these other languages are. Now I get to go to the D language people and tell them how awesome the BSDs are. And I'm hoping that um, we can find a way to have more interaction with our communities, uh, particularly for the D language community, uh, OpenBSD, NetBSD, and Dragonfly perhaps, because they officially do support FreeBSD. So you can go and download FreeBSD binaries of the D compiler. It's part of their CI infrastructure. And so they expect um, all their tooling to work um, for FreeBSD. So now it's just a matter of getting interest for the others. Um, and then some other interesting languages I've encountered. Um, so there's the Modula 2 team, which is effectively just a one guy team who's been doing this for the last 20 years um, and has worked really hard over that time um, to get his compiler in a state where GCC will upstream it, and they have finally given him the go-ahead maybe a month or two ago. Um, they finally greenlit it for incorporation. So it should be there, I would say probably GCC 12. I don't exactly have um, their scheduling, but I would surmise that it would be there for GCC 12. And at least for OpenBSD, I can tell you right now, whatever day that Modula 2 gets officially adopted by upstream, it will already work with OpenBSD because I actually did some work with um, the Modula 2 developer to ensure that OpenBSD just works. I mean, that's generally what I end up doing is, you know, picking picking off the edges of things that kind of mostly sort of work, um, but would be really helpful if we just added these couple tweaks and just say, hey, upstream, um, I can give you a whole bunch of people who might be interested in your language if you incorporate these handful of diffs we have to get things building and working on OpenBSD. So I'm really interested in that stuff. And I always tell people, if you know of other languages that are out there, let me know and I'll go I'll go port them and, and we'll have a good time. What's your, your argument to the maintainers of the language to support more operating systems? Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say for the most part, most upstreams are somewhere between happy that someone is using their language to very happy that they have users and they can get users that they normally otherwise wouldn't have contact with. I have yet to actually encounter an upstream, a language upstream that says, no, we're not going to take patches for OpenBSD. I have had upstreams say something to me along the lines of, we're happy to take these patches, uh, but we are going to right, maybe not say that this is a tier one operating system for this language. But as long as you have users who are willing to put in the time to make sure that things still build and work, we'll be happy to continue to incorporate all of your patches into 
our code base. And I think that's a perfectly acceptable uh, situation. And I have that with a number of languages, right? I don't expect them to drop everything for OpenBSD support, but it's good to know that they consider us part of their overall strategy, even if it is, you know, we kind of have to be forthcoming with um, some of that maintenance work. Yeah, it's definitely a, a good way of having like a, a bridgehead or a foot in the door into another project. I mean, we're talking about a lot of uh, new users this way, and we just had a, a, finished a, a great EuroBSDCon uh, last weekend. Um, and there's always nice to talk among the BSDs, but, you know, as you said, having other people that have not used the BSD so much and that for them is a completely new user base or a completely new field of endeavor, that's pretty nice. And vice versa, they also benefit from us in in them having new language uh, users potentially. Yeah, absolutely. And there is plenty of interest among those communities. So um, a couple months ago, maybe back in April or so, um, I actually ended up getting connected with the tiny C compiler team uh, just because they had some people who were interested. You know, it, it ran, ran on Linux, it ran on Mac, and there was just somebody who was like, let's go add the BSDs now because right, we, we have these other operating systems of support. Um, and I think FreeBSD came first. I don't 100% remember um, the ordering, but I remember that they had a particular problem with OpenBSD that they couldn't get shared libraries to um, work correctly. They, they couldn't have TCC detect the shared libraries on, on OpenBSD for whatever reason. So I, ended up, I knew what the problem was. I wrote them a quick patch. I sent it to them. It got incorporated right, right away. And now OpenBSD is just part of their testing infrastructure. They kind of expect um, OpenBSD users to be using it. And it's in ports now. And I will say, I do occasionally get emails from people saying, thank you for this port or that port uh, that you wrote and maintained. Uh, but I think the record for most people to say thank you for a port happens to be the tiny C compiler. For whatever reason, people are just super interested in it. And I, you know, that's fine by me. It means that I know we have users in OpenBSD and it just makes life easier when things go wrong. I send stuff to them. I can say, look, we have, you know, this user base that would really appreciate this going into the code base. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to receive these uh, gratitude letters. For sure. Uh, <laughs> once in a while <laughs> um, but since you already touched on that so what does the porting process in OpenBSD look like is there anything special or how do we have to imagine yeah so I don't know it's hard for me to say if it's special or not because I've been doing it for so long uh, kind of coming on my 10 year anniversary of of doing ports so to me it's just the thing that I do um, so I know there are differences right between OpenBSD ports let's say free BSD packages, uh, package source for NetBSD. I'm not 100% sure what Dragonfly is using these days, but I surmise it's at least different from OpenBSD. Um, so for us, we have a porter's handbook um, that people can read through to skim to kind of get an idea of um, kind of our approach to things. We have in the porch tree itself, we have some templates. Particularly importantly, we have a template for how our make files in the porch tree should be uh, constructed, how variables should be ordered, things like that, um, which is a good starting point. And then for me, I think uh, the best advice I can give, um, particularly for people who think they may want to start doing ports themselves, is 
besides just start doing it, right, which is always a really easy thing for somebody who has a lot of experience to say, um, are things like keep it small, right? I made the mistake of attempting to port a game to OpenBSD as my first port. Um, and not only <laughs> did I say, okay, I'm going to port with this graphical program that has a number of dependencies with it. I also said, you know what would be a great idea? It would be a great idea if I used this much slower, uh, you know, lesser supported architecture with which to do it. Not thinking that, oh, right, I have like a fast AMD64 machine. Let's build it on that first to save myself the headache. And then I can go test it on the lesser used architectures, um, right? So don't discount things like a fast machine. Um, but there are plenty of great examples that are out there. And there are always going to be people who are excited to hear that their programs were considered interesting enough to get into a package system. Um, so what I would say is find those people. Like, you know, maybe it's newer developers. Maybe it's someone who just likes to write tiny utilities in C or C++ without any external dependencies. Work with them, uh, particularly if you encounter runtime issues or compiling issues that you're uncertain about. And then after that, I would say build something that at least works on your machine and then send it to the ports mailing list. And don't be afraid to send things to the ports mailing list, right? We're not, we're not all that scary, um, right? You know, there is the whole, you know, we're just all behind email, right? Because we still do all of our work by email um, on OpenBSD. So it would be ports at openbsd.org um, to submit things. But just send it. Um, and be not necessarily aggressive, um, but be consistent in wanting to get feedback and wanting to get things into the ports tree, particularly for new people. Um, I still do it too, right? All these years later, if nobody picks up review for a port, right? You know, wait a week. If you don't hear anything in a week or so, send a reminder email, right? And just keep doing that. Eventually, um, somebody will pick it up, will give you a, a review. And then, right, a lot of the times it'll be go back, change these things, resubmit, um, and we'll iterate it on, on it together until it's in a position where we're ready to actually commit it to the porch tree, um, right? Part of it is just a, a human power issue, right? And there are only so many porters and, you know, I can only speak for myself, but right during the semester, I kind of have limited time, unfortunately, to do OpenBSD and, and ports work. I wish I could find a way to still do all of my, you know, research responsibilities, teaching responsibilities, everything else, and have all the time that I would normally have or, or would want to have um, to do ports. But I haven't figured out that one quite yet. Maybe I'll have to figure out a way to make a course on on porting for the different BSDs, and that way I can I can have my fun uh, in the classroom as well. <laughs> so we've we've circled back to your your teaching responsibilities. Um, so you said earlier that you uh, let, let your students play around on an OpenBSD machine that you host. What sort of challenges does introducing the students to to BSD typically have? Yeah, so I would say uh, students are hungry to learn. You know, they want to learn stuff, and you know. I'm the kind of person who is very excited about the stuff I teach. I really enjoy uh, all the stuff that I'm doing. I, in fact, once had a student say to me, um, 
before a class started, he said, you're always so happy to see us. And I said, why wouldn't I always be so happy to see you? Like, this is my job. And I, you know, I really enjoy my job. And so that's even part of it, right? Just, you know, it's not just showing, you know, OpenBSD or any of the BSDs as a particular tool. It's showing them this is a tool that you have excitement about. And I think all of us have excitement about, right? We're all involved in this community because we want to see the BSDs be the best that they can be and all the different things that they do and all the different problems that they solve. And that goes a long way. So I think once students see right, my own interest and excitement in it, um, they begin to get curious, well, why is it that he is so excited and interested you know, in this thing? And here he is giving us an opportunity to play around on one of his systems that is running this thing. So in my InfoSec course, I make all of them as their first homework assignment of the semester. They have to get me their SSH keys, they have to log into the system, and then I have like a really quick Unix intro, right? You know, think about like how might we CD into different directories, run LS, um, copy, remove, things like that. And, you know, VI exists on a system, you might want to look into that. Emacs probably exists on most systems. You might want to look into that. Um, if you don't like either of those two things, I have Nano installed. You'll probably see that on a lot of machines. Right? Learn one of those console um, or terminal-based um, text editors. And then there's a quick rundown on things like how to run a C compiler and how to run make. Not that they don't know how to run a C compiler necessarily, um, but I find it to be a good refresher. Um, particularly because I don't always know where the students come from. And in my InfoSec courses, I'll have a mix of graduate students and undergrad. And I can only really be sure of the education the undergrads had, right? Because it came through RPI, but our graduate students could come from anywhere. And they don't necessarily have to be tech people as we are before they get into the program. So some of them really do just start from, from nothing. And so that, and then make, I always find to be useful. Every semester I get multiple students who tell me, thank you for making us learn something about make because we've never encountered it up until this point. Um, I don't know how true that necessarily is. I'm just kind of going by the student's word when they say that to me, to tell you. <laughs> right? That's what they tell me. So that's just what I, I accept to be, you know, the truth because that's what they tell me. Um, Right, and so kind of getting them involved with that. And then as we work through the semester, you know, not everything is going to be in, in an InfoSec course that's kind of like a general catch-all course, right? Not everything's going to be, right, a thing that we can go back to the BSCs about. But we have a whole section of the semester, about a third of the semester on secure coding. And so it's a great opportunity to say, all right, you know, things like startle copy, startle cat, they existed because historically we had Right, only string copy, and it turns out string copy can be really bad for uh, for you if you have strings that are far larger than your buffers are. And here are some things that people have developed in order to solve those problems. And look, it's not just that they solve the problems for themselves, right? Startle copy, startle cat is like kind of everywhere these days, um, right? And so oh, these luckily. are things that have been adopted by lots and lots of people. And I think that also helps too when we're talking about. Um, getting students involved with interested in the BSDs as well, right? They don't have to take the system as, you know, a take it or leave it situation. You can say to them, right, there are the, this piece, this piece, and this piece that are really going to help us today. We're going to talk about them today. Um, I spend some time in my InfoSec classes talking about OpenBSD features like Pledge and Unveil. 
Uh, just because it like gets them all excited, like, oh, like, wait, there's a thing you can do where you can, you know, just restrict uh, programs based on what syscalls they make and force them to not make certain syscalls or else, right, they crash and that, right, solves a whole whole bunch of problems. Like, yes, like, this is a feature that, it, that exists in, well, at least in OpenBSD, right? But just kind of getting them involved in individual pieces. Um, and then on the flip side of that, I also teach a course that we call Modern Binary Exploitation, which is about hacking into machines, right? They read a lot of C code and they figure out how to write exploits against our specially crafted uh, challenges. And so they're able to see like, oh, if we had only used this feature that we talked about last semester in InfoSec that came from OpenBSD, this thing wouldn't even be a problem. It would just be a non-issue. Oh, so maybe I should think about using that for my own projects. Oh, well, if I'm already gonna be using all this BSD software, and I already have a professor I can go to who can help me with BSD questions, maybe I should just start using it. And then, right, that's when you get the fun of like pushing them to, to do development work. But that's that's a, a later conversation for, for a lot of them. Yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of parallels to my class, how I teach. So I, I forced them to use VI, but I mean, well, um, and so my first lab is also trying to bring them all on the same page because I also have people who have used Unix before mm -hmm. and some people who are completely new. And that's the most challenging lab for me because I don't know what I'm going to get. And then later on, everyone learns something new. So that's not a problem. But the first lab bringing them all on the same page is typically the most difficult. Um, but yeah, your approach of them not having to install and just doing the SSH key exchange thing, yeah, that could also be a thing. I also saw from another university um, that they're doing some kind of software bomb lab where they have they, they get some binaries and they have to um, find out a, a certain string or a key in there that's hidden in the binary. And so they have to kind of learn about, you know, disassembly mm -hmm. and strings and things like that. And if you run the program a couple of times or run it in the wrong way, um, it explodes and it records the number of explosions for that particular student on a remote server so that the <laughs> instructor can always see how you know how good they are and what kind of <laughs> how the students are in the in the ranking and what kind of you know that's really cruel <laughs> it is yeah but i mean that kind of engages the students and tells them hey i need to be careful with this kind of stuff because it could really well exploit my machine if i'm just running binaries that i don't know what they're doing yeah, of course. The one thing I used to do too, that's so that the class you just described sounds a lot like my MBE class, except we only record when they actually break into the, like we, they're trying to break it in that class. So we only record when they actually are successful. But there's another thing that I used to do that I don't do anymore because it was a course I would guest lecture for one weekend, but the course I think has changed hands at this point. You might remember Benedict. Um, every semester I would have a whole bunch of RPI students just like comb through the FreeBSD handbook and they would look oh, for yes. typos or links that didn't work. So that lab was supposed to get them to understand how to generate diffs to a project, how to be able to read through what a project expects a diff to look like, and then how to actually get involved with the community by actually submitting that that diff. I would love to do that again, but that course, the professor that used to teach when I would, would do that has since retired um, and the course has changed hands. So that one kind of fell by the wayside, but I'll try to, I'll have to figure out a way to do that again because that was really helpful for the students and 
hopefully it's helpful for all of you as well, uh, getting some typo yeah. fixes and things like that. Yeah, oh, a, cap- yeah. a captive it, it, audience to go through the the handbook is great. You need to do that again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the bug tracker was pubbled at, the, at that point, but <laughs> there was a lot of small things, like here's a typo missing or a repeated the, the, the or something. And these were small bite, you know, chunks to eat for a new developer to just fix them and have a little bit of work under the belt. And the students are also happy that their work got integrated. That's right. They all they all like seeing that, you know, this thing that they submitted, you know, you actually committed and look, there's their name in in the commit logs for for all of time for anyone to see. And I like those bite sized bite sized uh, things to get students interested in you know, what they may scope around for to do next in, in the BSDs and, and other things like that and for their own development. So we already touched a little bit, but uh, can you think of other ways how we can leverage these students, their potential, their, their time even to bring them into the open source space or the BSDs? Yeah, so students want to do it. You know, at least, well, I guess I can only talk about RPI, but at least here at RPI, um, at least my student body, they're excited about open source stuff. Um, you know, I think for us, right, you know, taking the onus off the students and putting it back on us who are already in there. And I know this can be difficult for a lot of us, but um, finding the time to work with those interested students. I know like the FreeBSD project, um, you all do the Google Summer of Code every summer. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking, you know, what if we did something that was just like, let's take a weekend and any student that wants to come they can come there can be someone from one of the bsd projects who has right something small and manageable and accomplishable in let's say a weekend's worth of work and working through that student to actually get it done students would absolutely eat that up i'm sure i have to find some way to to give them credit for it which is fine that's a, a problem that i can certainly figure out how to handle um <laughs> Because once they get involved, they want to stay involved. You know, I, even now, you know, I look at, you know, students who apply to jobs, who apply to graduate school, and I always have them send them, uh, send me their resumes, uh, particularly for graduate school, so I know what to write in their letters of recommendation. Um, But you would be absolutely shocked to see how many of them who have come through my classes who will stick OpenBSD as a skill in their skill list. (laughs) <laughs> and they're and they're more than happy to to talk to right potential employers and things like that about the fact that right they don't just know Linux they also know this other thing called OpenBSD and it makes them a more well-rounded Unix systems administrator because in case right we ever decide as a company to move to something different I already know how to how to work with right the quote-unquote different things um, so I think if we open you know give students um, kind of an in into the project to just take ownership of something small at first, right? With somebody who can work with them to achieve that something small, um, we will get a a lot of students who will want to hang out and stay around and do more stuff. And I've been trying real hard to get them to do more stuff, but I will get, I will get there at some point. (laughs) Yeah. It's like a, a mini hackathon for a specific topic. Yeah, And they don't even have to finish that. It's just an introduction because many of the students from Google Summer of Code even continue their work after the program is over or even become committers. And then next year or the years after become mentors themselves. So yes, of course, that's kind of nice. Yeah, My hope is once we... I I guess a big part of the... Hmm? 
Oh, sorry. I, I guess a big part of the problem is is making it scalable, though. So Google Summer of Code does take a lot of, like, it's basically one-on-one -on -one mentoring, and so it's really difficult to get right more than the number of developers you have at hand's worth of students through. Yeah. If there was a way to get like a slightly higher ratio, it would definitely be more valuable. Right, and you know that's just you know unfortunately for all of us, just a a problem, right? We all we all have other jobs and and things uh, to do. My hope is eventually when rpi begins to allow back um, just kind of like the general community once we're all totally post-covid um, to just kind of like run a mini hackathon and anyone from the bsd community who wants to come here for a weekend come you know let's let's get ourselves in front of students let's talk about these interesting things right maybe even i don't know how how i'm going to swing this but even maybe like a mini conference or even a full conference right just to get just to get students in front of all of us, you know, to to share with them kind of the, all that excitement that we have for the BSDs and and give them a place where they can say, right, okay, you know, maybe I don't know as a student where I'm going to end up in the broader IT, CS, what have you world, but I know that that the, that there is this world here where I know people in this world, and if I want to get involved in a project, this is a group of people who will have me. And even that can go a long way. Oh, and it would be I good mean, to see you all too in person. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I, I have halfway booked my ticket already. Um, so, but we could combine this with the docs work, right? We could in the morning session do them teaching a little bit about, you know, how the docs process work. And in the afternoon, we do as you did earlier, like go through the man pages, the handbook, whatever you, and then, you know, learn what they just learned in the mornings and find those bugs and then have someone at hand to answer questions and help them a little bit along the way and the results are patches and you know bug fixes or yeah, yeah. and and one thing that i find is once you get a student to do it once they'll kind of take it upon themselves to go teach it they, to they run, to yeah. other students which i always love seeing so right once you get ahead. like the, yeah, that yeah. first set of interesting students it kind of snowballs from there which is always good to see yeah, once you have the the foot in the door, you you kind of want to go all the way through. So yeah, and it's from there. It's also not problematic for the projects to take in those submissions because they they have the right format or they don't have the the beginner mistakes anymore because they had someone uh, walk them through that. And so yeah, this could be a thing. And same for for ports or for source even. Yeah, yeah, this could be you know kind of extended to whatever it is that we would want to work on and what, what we would want the students to work on. Cool. So so stepping away from uh, pulling in students and talking a bit more about community involvement, could you tell us a bit about what you do with NiceBug? Sure. So NiceBug is the New York City BSD user group. Um, I don't know if we're the oldest BSD user group. We are definitely one of the oldest BSD user groups at this <laughs> point. Be, yeah. um, we've been around since like 03, 04. So, you know, it's been a long time. I've been involved kind of in the admin arena for NiceBug for maybe the last seven, eight years at this point. Um, so in the, the before times, before right, the pandemic, uh, it'd be once a month. It would be usually uh, in New York City, of course, um, we usually would get like a restaurant or a bar or something like that. So people would have, you know, food and stuff for, you know, a reason to go somewhere after work that wasn't straight home. <laughs> Besides the BSDs. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, and we would normally have a speaker who would come, you know, and we would be pretty broad with topics. So, you know, some months it might be, you know, 
a really specific meaning about a really specific BSD, maybe even like the new killer feature of a particular BSD, or it might be more general Unixy that affects all of us. So even just last month, um, we had a really fascinating talk about um, corn shell and aux scripting, right? And kind of just beyond the basics that you might see if you just like looked up a quick tutorial on on those things. So now during the pandemic, um, we've actually we've moved online quite successfully. Um, which probably is good for a lot of people because you no longer have to book a ticket to New York City if you're not already there to come to our meetings. Um, so they're always free, always available. Um, we usually do unless the speaker requests otherwise. It's usually the first Wednesday of the month. We usually get started around 6.45 New York time. So whatever that is uh, for everybody else. And so that's what we've been doing um, so far. So I have found Nicebug to be really helpful, um, not just to bring in new people, because of course we do that as well, um, but it's also a really good venue for people who have already been maybe on the periphery of the BSD community to find a way to kind of step up and do the next thing in their kind of BSD lives, more or less. Um, so we, and I in particular, really love to see first-time speakers talk in Nicebug. Um, and Nicebug is open for people who are giving their very first talk. Um, you know, I'm even willing to help people who want to give their very first talk if they want to right, trial it in front of me or, or have me kind of review notes and stuff because I've done a whole lot of talks at Nicebug before. I think I've given like 10 talks at Nicebugs over the years. Um, so I'm pretty used to, to how it goes. Um, and I found that to be really successful. I've, I found that lots of people who kind of give those first talks, they walk away with it. First of all, feeling that, oh, it actually wasn't all that bad to get up there and, and talk to a room full of people, right? Everybody expects, you know, a, a talk like that to be, oh, you know, everyone in the room is definitely smarter than me, which is, of course, always true when I'm the one giving the talk, right? Everybody is always smarter than me, right? And so they'll know right away that, you know, whatever it is that you're saying um, is totally wrong and they're totally going to call you out on it. Uh, but of course, that's never actually true, those of us who have, you know, ever given a talk at a conference or a bug or stuff like that. And I will say we have had people who kind of, quote unquote, got their speaking start at Nicebug, go on to give talks at not just BSD cons, but other conferences as well. Um, so Nicebook is not just a really great way to come and meet other people who are interested in the BSDs and grow community that way, but it's also a really good opportunity for people who want to have that first toe in the water, let's say, of contributing back to the BSD community. And right, that could be their way of doing so, right? Sharing the knowledge that they have back with the rest of us. I, I too find the, the BSD community to be <clears throat> almost unreasonably friendly and supportive to new speakers. Uh, we was, can't help was, ourselves. It was, it was really <laughs> great speaking at um, FOSDEM, which is the first like BSD event I went to. And everyone was so nice. So, so lovely. Uh, so, so Brian, how would people get in touch with you if they wanted your, your help joining Nicebook? Sure. Um, well, you can email me. I have one of many emails, probably the one most attached to a, a place like BSD now would be bcala at openbsd.org. Uh, that's B-C-A-L-L-A-H at openbsd.org. Um, you can also find me, I'm not on Twitter anymore, but I am on Mastodon for those of you on the Fediverse. So I'm just bcala at bsd.network. Um, you can ping me there. 
If you go to my website, which is briancallahan.net, I think there's some other emails and stuff. Like there, there are ways to to find me. I'm I'm not a particularly difficult person to to get a hold of. And any way you want to get a hold of me is totally cool. I'm I'm pretty responsive to to emails, and I'll get back to you pretty quickly. Uh, so for people who are thinking, hey, why don't I start my own BSD user group in my area? Do you have some kind of tips and uh, tricks that they could use for their first? meetup or what's involved in organizing such a thing? Yeah. So the first tip I would say, and I kind of experienced this too. So I don't actually live in New York City. I live about an hour and a half due north in the capital district, um, right outside of Albany. And so we do have our own kind of offshoot of nice bug, nice bug called CD bug, the capital district bug up here. Uh, but of course, New York City being New York City, there's a lot more people down there than there are up here. Right. So for me, my best advice would be keep things realistic, right? Unless you live in like LA, New York City, right? Pick whatever other big cities are out there. Um, you know, just be aware that population might be a hamper in getting to see lots of people face to face. The way that we always suggest, and I think is still a pretty good way to go, is start with a mailing list. Doesn't have to be complicated doesn't have to be, you know, all the bells and whistles. You can even contact NiceBug, um, admin at list.nicebug.org, um, saying, hey, I'm thinking of starting a bug. Could you set us up with a mailing list? We've certainly done that in the past. And, you know, sorry, Ocon, uh, but, you know, I'm sure we'd be happy to do it again in the future for other people. So start with that. See who's in your area. See what kind of BSD interest, BSD expertise is in your area. Maybe you're lucky and you happen to live in a place where a number of developers for all the different projects happen to live, you know, in this like small town or small city somewhere. And then, right, then you're off to the races, right? You know, you can have them come in, you can have them talk about what they're doing, and right, that can make your life really easy. But if not, if you live in a place where maybe you're the only BSD developer in town, right? You know, I there's a, a handful of others here. I know there's another free BSD dev on campus, um, and I know of another free BSD dev who lives in Albany. But right? other than the three of us, right? You know, our interest group is going to come from just the general public um, who are not necessarily necessarily you know deeply involved in BSD. So if you start with the mailing list and you say, hey. You know, would we want to chat with each other over mail for a little bit about BSD? And if that gets momentum, say, hey, does anyone have a project they think they'd want to share with us? You know, maybe let's find, you know, maybe this would be a little easier in the post-COVID world, but right, a restaurant to meet at and we'll meet up one day after work or maybe on a Sunday, um, engage interest. And then if the momentum is still going, then that's when you would say, I would say, you know, do it, have that first meeting. And at that point, if the momentum is still going, then we can talk about or right, you can think about um, doing it on a more regular basis every month, every other month, right, whatever it is. But start small, start realistic, right? Don't feel like you have to replicate, right, what a nice bug might do, because um, nice bug has the advantage of already being in New York City and having the fact that there are tons of BSD people all around New York City. Um, Right, so small, simple, manageable, manageable pieces, and as you get the momentum, build up. And talk to the other people who run bugs. So um, at most BSD conferences, there's usually a BOF session called MetaBOF, which is all the people who run bugs 
um, come together and chat with one another about things that are working and things that are not working. So if you're at a conference and you're thinking of starting a bug, um, go hang out at MetaBoff, right, whichever lunch we decide to do that particular BOF. Talk to the people who run it. See what challenges they're facing. Right? Try to identify the people who live in an area that's like population analogous to you so you can see kind of the struggles they have with their, you know, with their groups um, and see how you might right, iterate on that and improve upon that for where you are. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of good tips here. And I agree with you that scaling up is less of a problem than getting started and then moving up from there. Okay. So uh, do you have anything else for us you'd like to talk about before we let you go? Go engineers. They're our hockey team. They're uh, a D1 <laughs> hockey team. So, <laughs> so go engineers. No, this is great. I'm always happy to talk to you guys. Always happy to talk um, about BSD. And I look forward to actually seeing you all again in person at a conference, hopefully sooner rather than later. Oh, yes. Oh, don't we all. The longing keeps increasing. I know. The longer this goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, and I know a lot of people mention that uh, conferences are used to recharge their BSD batteries. And yeah, if they, if they happen online, it's kind of, yeah, it's good, but it's not the real yeah, thing. Yeah, it's never quite the same uh, compared to seeing everybody. Yeah. So I guess absence makes, uh, you know, BSD hearts go stronger. I don't know. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, definitely uh, great having you on the show. And uh, the topics you talked about were definitely interesting. And maybe someone else is, is interested in, in teaching with the BSDs and uh, reaches out to you or to us and we can uh, establish the connection there. Yeah, absolutely. Always happy to chat with people about that. Yeah. All right. Okay. Thanks, Brian. Thanks. All right. Thanks, guys. So that was the interview we had with Brian Callahan. So thank you, Brian, again for appearing on our show again. So... This is not the actual end of this episode because we also want to mention the sponsor for this episode. This is Tarsnap. Tarsnap is the online backup for the truly paranoids. It gives you the proper way to encrypt your backups before they leave your computer. Your computer has all the important files you want to backup and they are stored outside of your computer in case disaster strikes and you need those files back. It's better to have them offsite. And in Tarsnap's case, they store those encrypted backups in Amazon's AWS cloud. And to create these backups, Tarsnap provides its own very similar TAR-like command line interface uh, that uh, encrypts the data and also does a little bit of finding the duplicates and reducing the file size a little bit, sometimes dramatically, with compression. And then uh, encryption key that you have on your computer or generated via Tarsnap is used to encrypt the data and then the data leaves your computer encrypted, not before. So unencrypted data will never leave uh, your system. Tarsnap is very competitive in its pricing. So it, even if you store a lot of gigabytes of data, it, it's very challenging to not reach <laughs> almost bankruptcy. But Tarsnap is very cheap. Tarsnap uh, allows you to pay as you go. In this way, for example, you start charging your account with maybe $5 to begin with. And then as you use Tarsnap more and more, uh, your account will, your balance will decrease. And then when, when it's reaching a certain critical level before you, you run out in your account, they will send you an email asking you to uh, increase the balance once more. You can pay with credit card and PayPal. So you never get an, actually a surprise bill because, you know, the data that you have is the one that Tarsnap 
bills you. There are plenty of clients available for Tarsnap if you don't want to use the command line, but this is very easy to do. Uh, there's clients available for the Linuxes, the BSDs, a subsystem for Windows, any other Unixes are also ported. So there's plenty of reasons to use Tarsnap since it's as universally available. Check out Tarsnap on tarsnap.com slash BSD now. They have very comprehensive uh, documentation on their website and explain how their system works in great detail. And if you want to participate in their bug bounty, you can uh, win prizes for finding uh, critical security flaws that could be in there. So the source code is available for the client part and things like, uh, you know, <laughs> typos and comma errors are also uh, rewarded with a little bit of less money. But uh, if you want to look for those, that's also uh, <laughs> in the bug bounty program that Tarsnap does. So check out Tarsnap in all its details and uh, start making backups the secure and paranoid way. All right, so this is actually the end of this episode. Uh, in next week, we have another regular episode with the usual content for you. Uh, we want to do another special episode for you in the future, maybe around Christmas or New Year's, where you have the chance to interview us. So this way, you can send us questions to our email address, feedback at bsdnow.tv. And then once we have enough of those questions collected and can fill a whole episode of it, then uh, we will do this. So we all, Tom, Alan, and I will, or JT even, if you have a question for him, uh, our show producer, you can send uh, any kind of questions that we like or that you like to ask us always or that we haven't answered before in a previous interview episode. And uh, again, uh, if we have enough of those questions, we would be happy to record an episode answering those. So again, feedback at bsdnow.tv and a subject line of uh, maybe host interviews that so that we know these are the ones for us, not a regular uh, show episode question. If you have other content for us uh, about the BSDs, about BSD Now, anything you want to discuss with us, this is going then into the regular feedback episode, uh, then it's the same email address, feedback at bsdnow.tv. Thank you for listening to our interview. And again, we'll be back with another episode next week. Mm -hmm.